Hello, I'm Waverly Fitzgerald, and this is an essay called Portraits of Plants from my book, My Year in Flowers. And it starts with an epigram from St. Francis of Assisi. What you are looking for is what is looking. When I began my year-long project of learning about the plants in my urban neighborhood, I assigned myself the task of learning to draw plants in April. March was the month for learning how to identify them. It turned out I got this backwards. Nothing gets you up close and personal as quickly as sketching a plant. You take it apart like the pieces of a puzzle, poring over each fragment, sniffing out its mysteries. So many ways to look at it. Prying open the petals to count the pistils and stamens, twirling the stem in your fingers, outlining it with a pen while pinning the plant in place with a fingertip, tracing the network of veins on the leaves, shading in the shadows on the folds of the petals, noticing the tiny star on the base of the berry. As I handle the flower, turning it upside down, flattening it, pressing back the petals, fondling the leaves, Details emerge that surprise and delight me. It's like exploring a lover's body during those lazy hours you spend in bed at the start of a love affair. A snowdrop has never been the same since I peeled back its tepals and found, to my surprise, green and white stripes inside. You don't need special equipment to draw plants. I rely upon a ring-bound notebook and a felt-tip pen. Jude Siegel, the author of A Pacific Northwest Nature Sketchbook, suggests a few additional items to carry with you on a sketching expedition. A child's watercolor set, a small container for water, and a rag or tissue. But these are just the basics. You can add to your toolbox watercolor pencils, gel pens, charcoals, erasers, rulers, A magnifying glass is a useful tool, especially for aging eyes like mine. The author of The Decorated Page, Gwen Dean, suggests using whatever you find at hand, the juice of a purple iris for ink, or the quill end of a feather found on the sidewalk as a pen. I find the quick sketch done on site captures the vitality of the moment and thus all the sensory details better than the more studied sketches I've done at my desk at home, armed with a panoply of tools. I learned my favorite drawing technique, contour drawing, years ago in a high school art class. Betty Edward also describes it in her pioneering book, Drawing on the Right Side of the Brain. The instructions are simple. Put your pen on the page. Look at your subject. Outline the contours of the object with your pen. Do not look at your paper. Do not take your pen off the page. Resist the temptation to peek at your drawing as you proceed. This often turns a lively sketch into something stiff and stilted. I used contour drawing throughout high school and college classes to create sketches of my teachers, other students, my shoes, and my own hand drawing. Sometimes you get an undecipherable tangle of squiggles, 
but other times you end up with a lovely portrait that really captures the essence of the person. Why does this technique work better than conscious imitation? What we believe we see is not what we really see. Try drawing a cup while looking back and forth between your paper and your subject. Then draw the cup again using contour drawing, that is, not looking at your drawing until you are done. I think you will be surprised by how much more the second version actually resembles a cup. We have a notion of a cup shaped by our three-dimensional experience with it, but it's not the cup our eye sees. Ask a child to draw a flower, and you will usually get a picture of something that resembles a daisy with five or six petals and a round center. You could find such a flower in nature, but you would only see it this way if you squashed it flat and viewed it from above. Try to draw a daisy as it grows or stands in a vase, and some of the petals will be foreshortened by your perspective. Some will sag, others will be twisted or half-hidden. Jude Siegel recommends a form of contour drawing she calls spirit drawing. It is different from contour drawing in that you spend time before beginning to draw, simply drinking in the sight of your subject. Then take your pen. Siegel encourages the use of a pen as it will force you to commit. Choose a spot on the subject, put your pen on the paper, and begin drawing, traveling along the lines of the object. If you are drawing a flower, pretend you are a tiny bug traversing the edges of each petal. Or you can imagine tracing the edges of the subject with your fingertip, the gentle caress of a lover. Siegel uses spirit drawing as a warm-up before a more studied attempt, and I've used it this way as well. I have to admit that the first sketches are often more lively than the sketches I labor over. As the name implies, they capture more of the spirit of the plant. Siegel says it's as if, what the eye sees then travels through the heart, the emotional heart, which can recognize the spirit or essence of an object something the mind cannot do, then continues down the arm and fingers, and finally through the pen or other tool, and is then recorded onto the paper. There's a famous saying that goes, draw bamboos for ten years, become a bamboo, then forget all about bamboos when you are drawing. I produce pages of sketches for every plant I study. I begin with a contour drawing or spirit drawing. Then I do a more literal contour drawing, placing the flower on the page and tracing around it. Although this usually produces a rather clumsy outline, at least I have a life-size reproduction of the plant. With my next sketches, I focus on the details. How many petals? How many stamens? How do they line up? I try to describe colors a silvery pink, a greenish brown. I try to describe fragrances. As I work with each flower, the botanical terms that seemed so artificial become real. The parallel lines of the monocot family are apparent in the leaf. I notice right away that the leaves are alternating, rather than opposite on the stem. I find the sepals most interesting. 
like little green jewel cases with their green ribs and undulating shapes. They almost always recapitulate the number of petals and stamens. Sometimes I break down the shape of the petals into simple shapes, lining them around the center in an ideal pattern. I examine the way the flower and the leaf are attached to the stem and draw those nodes on the paper. These botanical details, when repeated, create designs. I've always dreamed in design. It used to be that when I closed my eyes, I would see designs for fabrics, for china, for wrapping paper, flashing behind my eyelids. These went away as I got older. Where did they go? Perhaps they atrophied due to disuse. But even now, when I look at the plates from old herbals, The ones I like the most are the ones in which plants are reduced to decoration or stylized beyond recognition, in the words of Wilfred Blunt in his book The Illustrated Herbal. You don't need artistic talent to do this sort of drawing. Of course it helps, but I have none, as my high school art teacher made clear to me. Yet I managed to create sketches that are recognizable, More important, they are educational. Remember, the purpose of the sketch is not to create a lifelike rendition of the flower, such that people will gaze at it and say, wow, that looks just like an Alstromeria, but rather that you will have learned more about it. Actually, I was a snob about Alstromerias until I drew one. I thought of them as frivolous products of the cut flower trade. They have no scent, and they last forever in the vase, two signs of a flower that has been turned into a freak of nature. But a few years ago, I spent two cold, wet weeks in March at a writer's retreat. The only flowers to be found were the astromerias that had been purchased to adorn the main house where we ate our dinners. I took a few stems with me to my cabin in the woods, and I began to draw them. It was me and the astromerias for hours. I could not get enough of them. I loved the clever shape of the flower, with its three rounded tepals, serving as a curving base for the more vertical tepals, which flaunt splashes of yellow and distinctive black nectar lines, designs as decorative as the spots of a cougar or the stripes of a zebra, luring bumblebees into the nectar at the heart of the flower. I loved the six-sided little green basket of the ovary, the three little curlicues on each pistil. I loved the snake-like curve of the stem, the twist of the leaves. Never again will I snub an astromeria. Drawing flowers was a favorite hobby of young Victorian women. They set off with their sketch pads and watercolors, pencils and pens, into the meadows and country lanes on sunny summer days, stopping to sketch the plants they encountered. Today, those young women would probably have set off with digital cameras. And though I am dazzled by the photographs of flowers I view on the web, photography just doesn't compare to drawing if your goal is getting to know the flower. The distance between the lens and the plant might as well be miles. You miss the scent, the texture, the handling. You miss the finer details, the dusting of brown pollen, the sticky sap exuding from the pistil, the flap of green on the stem where the petals attach, the network of veins in the leaves.
Frederick Frank writes about this in The Zen of Seeing. Drawing requires a different kind of seeing. Pressing the button is, of course, incomparably better than walking through the world with dead eyes, but how easily it becomes a substitute for seeing. One thing the camera records well is the context in which the flower is found, its height from the ground, the soil under its feet, its companions, all details lost when you pluck the flower and take it home with you to draw. In the absence of a camera, notes can capture the details. It seems impossible that you will forget these, but as your notebooks fill up with sketches, you will want to know where you found that specimen of oso berry or what date the snowdrops bloomed. Claire Walker-Leslie and Charles Roth in Keeping a Nature Journal suggest recording your name, date, place, time of day, weather, and details like the temperature, the phase of the moon, the direction you're facing, and other things you've noticed, animals, wind, sounds. Last summer, I signed up for a class in botanical drawing. We met once a week for six weeks at the conservatory in Volunteer Park. The teacher was thoughtful, encouraging, patient. She gave us a variety of assignments. Each was designed to shift the way we viewed our subject matter. For instance, to notice the space between shapes, or to see a surface as merely a range of tones. All the insecurities I felt in my high school art classes came flooding back. I struggled with each lesson. At the start, I would be lost in the mechanics of drawing. Time flowed by as I communed with my subject and wrestled with my implements. Charcoal was my bane. But at some point, I would hit a wall and stop abruptly. When I looked at my work, I cringed. It didn't look anything like my subject. When my teacher looked at my work, she bit her lip, a gesture I interpreted as a mixture of pity and despair. She might make a suggestion for improvement, but I was almost never able to implement these. And then, a week later, I would be paging through my notebook and come upon my drawing unexpectedly and be stunned by its accuracy and beauty. It turns out that the way I see my work is not the way it looks. This practice of drawing plants has brought me many benefits. I've assembled a visual record of the plants in my neighborhood. I've learned about them in tangible and intimate ways. And I've developed my skills as an artist. But most profound is the way drawing plants has changed the way I see the world. Frederick Frank describes this in The Zen of Seeing. Drawing is the discipline by which I constantly rediscover the world. I have learned that what I have not drawn, I have never really seen. And that when I start drawing an ordinary thing, I realize how extraordinary it is. Sheer miracle. The branching of a tree. The structure of a dandelion puff.